0: And now on The Echo Chamber, a bonus episode featuring my interview with two of Dave Brubeck's sons, Dan and Chris Brubeck. Excellent musicians in their own right, the two shared intimate memories about growing up with their father and his legendary contributions to the history of modern jazz. Enjoy. We're sitting about 10 miles away from the house where we grew up. My dad used to work in San Francisco and come home and he'd go to bed. And then my mom would say like, you gotta be quiet. Your poor dad didn't go to bed till 3 or 4 in the morning. So part of the technique of keeping us quiet was that we had these little cheap record players almost in every room, including the room that was adjacent to my dad's room. We had these Disney records, tunes like, Someday My Prince Will Come, Alice in Wonderland. So my dad's asleep, and yet probably subconsciously He's hearing, and he's saying, da. after a while, he comes up with this idea. He says, you know, those actually are really good tunes, even though they're from cartoons. Then he started playing Someday My Prince Will Come. Miles Davis walks into a club in San Francisco. Here's my dad play. And his next record, Miles' record, is called Someday My Prince Will Come. So, you're staring at two of the brats that accidentally had something to do with those songs becoming jazz standards, just trying to be quiet. I'm Chris Brubeck, and I play in the Brubeck Brothers Quartet. I play electric fretless bass and sometimes bass trombone.
1: And I'm Dan Brubeck, and I'm a drummer with the Brubeck Brothers Quartet. I'm going to try something different so I don't have to play so much rhythm. Up here in Oakland
0: was just an open room with piano in it and whatnot. A kitchen and a big dining room table and this redwood pocket door that opened up to this studio. It was big enough for a grand piano and for drums to set up and, you know, just a beautiful space with big bay windows. And from those windows, you could literally see the Golden Gate Bridge, the Bay Bridge and the Richmond Bridge. As little kids, it was really fun to go camp outside and look at the twinkling lights. And, you know, it was very magical. And as a little kid also, if I wasn't thinking about music, i think about, like, Willie Mays is down there somewhere playing baseball, you know. <laughs> he was my hero, you know. <laughs> in on the you playing as high as you can play. I know for me, one of my favorite things to do in the world. I'd like to hear the group rehearse, I'd crawl under the piano and keep
2: that going. I want to hear that one and three.
0: And there I couldn't be in anyone's way, no one would step on me. And I got to hear all the low overtones of the piano and I got to hear the bass and the bass drum really well. That to me was like heaven, just lying down and listening.
1: Where I slept, and there was, was probably 10 feet from a door where my dad would practice, and he'd often practice at night or be writing, composing at night. So I, I don't think there were too many nights where I didn't fall asleep when he was home. To him, practicing and composing, I was always there. I was always hearing music. But I was lucky, too, because he had, in his rehearsals, Morello, who was an incredible drummer, and, uh, of course, we didn't know they were incredible drummers. We just heard all these guys, and they were, you know, oh, it's Uncle Paul, Uncle Joe, you know? So for us, it was just like these guys that were friends of my dad's that played.
0: Paul was like a visiting member of the octet.
1: He didn't study with Darius Mio, but he got called in to play in my dad's octet, which was the first group that he started, mostly people that
0: were studying with
1: Darius Mio.
0: Mio was so open-minded and loved American jazz so much that he said, "Here's a counterpoint exercise and old school would be it would be, you know, Bach prelude number 2." analyze it he would say the chord changes for that popular jazz tune how high the moon are very bach like when you think about it create an arrangement using counterpoint to that tune that was like what a hip professor and so those kinds of class exercises based on who played what in that class was the foundation of the group the octet
2: yes it's how high the moon i guess everyone has been exposed to its neat harmonic pattern by now so herein we experiment Marking, perhaps, its evolution through the channels of American music. The Priston Preamble, and now here it is with some adornment.
1: Paul Desmond, he said he heard my dad playing. He said, well, there was this crazy Indian guy (laughs) 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 playing piano, and he was in like three keys at the same time. I didn't know where to start, (laughs) (laughs) you know, how to play with him. Then he started hearing where he was coming from, and then, you know, he got interested in the whole... Darius Mio approach, and then he saw, oh, okay, he's you know he's got this concept that he's working on.
0: Polytonality at a jam session in the late '40s was not something you were going to stumble across <laughs> right. every day. It's like, what is this guy doing? It was originally Paul that heard Joe Morello playing with Mary McPartland and said, "I've heard this drummer; he's great." So Paul recommended Joe. Dave talked to Mary McPartland, and she said, "Okay, you know this could work out." Dave talked to Joe, and Joe said, I'll only leave if you guarantee me that you're going to give me a drum solo every night. Because he never got drum solos with Marion. And when Paul heard Joe play, he would only play with brushes. And, you know, he's got a great touch, and he'd be great. But Paul really had no idea what Joe Unleashed would be like. And so they did some concerts together, and he got the promised solo. Paul went, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be the guy that's really featured. People went nuts. I wasn't signing up to suddenly have a buddy rich in the group or something <laughs> so in fact their very first recording session it was like high noon or something paul said i'm not going to this recording session if you have joe morello on the drums that's how much i don't want this guy in the group and dave said well i'm sorry to end the relationship this way paul but i think that this is the perfect guy for our group and you can't see it yet so we're going to do the session without you, and I think they did one session without him, and then Paul blinked first, and then he came to the next one. Then it's music history. Gene came along later. There was one family, the Bates brothers. There were three bass playing brothers that lived in San Francisco. So all the musicians knew if you needed a bass player, just call the Bates house. You know, the old days of telephone, one phone number, no cell phones. Uh, they say, is Norm available, or is Bob, or Phil? I don't know. <laughs> Norman Bates and Paul were in love with the same woman, a glorious, beautiful woman. And she liked them both. And she said, you know, fellas, I'll make a choice based on which one of you will quit Dave's band. And Norman was willing to, and they ended up getting married. And Paul kept on going in his bachelor ways and staying in Dave's group. When Gene came into the group, part of that was that Norman had left to be with his new wife and they needed a new bass player. They knew he was great, rock solid. You know, at that point, it was really important, like, it's the personality. Does he have the personality that is gonna fit with Joe and and Paul? And and by the, the way, way there
1: were some personalities there yeah, yeah, right. to fit with, for sure. Yeah. yeah,
0: and by the way, I don't mean to imply that that Joe mm-hmm. and Paul, like, hated each other or anything, because after a while, Paul just couldn't avoid some kind of grudging respect for the guy that damn it, took all these drum solos, was winning all the polls in Downbeat Magazine for being the best drummer. If it wasn't Buddy Rich, it was Joe. Gene was such a role player. He let everyone do their thing, and he just held the fort. Could Gene be steady and handle going on the road? He was African-American. There were tours in the South, and some places they would go to play, they would say, wait a minute, we didn't know that you had a black bass player. We don't allow Negroes on stage with white guys at University of... Georgia, In a way, it was kind of parallel to sort of like movies about Jackie Robinson being the cat to deal with all this stuff and be cool under pressure. And Gene could do that. He had just had a heart of gold, loving guy. When my dad would lose it with people like that, you know, saying, well, either he plays
1: or we go or whatever, which he did, he never played if they wouldn't allow Gene to play. But Gene would calm my dad down because he was used to it. He had gone through it his whole life. And I think in general, he was a real calming element in the band. And because he was kind of this egoless bass player type guy, you know, he got along perfectly well with everyone
0: on an individual basis and kind of
1: bridged everyone together all the time.
0: It was turning down Something that would have had enormous economic impact on our family. At that point, having five kids, that's a lot of mouths to feed and all that reality. I remember one of those stories that came out of there is that Dave's manager saying something like, you know, Dave, you had white bass players for years. Why don't you just get that other bass player back so you don't lose these 30 gigs? And my dad said to the famous manager, who also managed Louis Armstrong and Sugar Ray Robinson, a tough guy named Joe Glazer. He said, well, Joe, how would you feel if they said, you can do this tour, but you got to get rid of your Jewish manager? And that sort of says it all. My father's biggest heroes that he ever knew personally in music were Duke Ellington and Darius Mioh. It was actually Darius Mio that instilled in my father this philosophy is that when you visit other countries, really keep your ears open. And that is the key of stretching your mind and the possibility of you creating something new and bringing it into your art form. Everywhere my dad went,
1: he would listen to the street music or whatever people were doing in the schools and tried to take it all in and i think that was the important element of the state department tourism in terms of how it affected my dad he then used those influences and brought it into jazz blue rondo that's a tune that's in eight, so it's an odd time signature and he heard a street musician playing like a drums on the corner somewhere and listened for a while and analyzed it and figured out that it was a 9-8 and different patterns of 9-8. So he listened long enough to understand how it all was coming together. In that tune, too, he also had the blues. Obviously, that's like the most American form of jazz. He collected all those things and it was maybe some of the first fusion music or world music. You know, you could put it that way.
0: The pinnacle, the zenith for us all culturally, politically, in every kind of way, was when Dave finally got the Kennedy Center honors. For Dave, who probably had performed for just about every president, you don't get the Kennedy Center award posthumously. So we feel like, how old does Dave have to get to have this happen? But it was so beautiful that it happened when
2: Obama was president.
0: It was Worth waiting for.
2: Thank you. On behalf of Michelle and myself, welcome to the White House. Today it is our great joy to continue a White House holiday tradition, a celebration of performers who have transformed the arts in America, our extraordinary Kennedy Center honorees.
0: Obama, as our president, stood for all the advances in our society that we hoped would happen when they were big into their civil rights efforts.
2: Now, these performers are indeed the best. They are also living reminders of a simple truth. And I'm going to steal uh, a line from Michelle here. Uh, The arts are not somehow apart from our national life. The arts are at the heart of our national life. You can't understand America without understanding jazz. And you can't understand jazz without understanding Dave Brubeck. Ladies and gentlemen, the Dave All-Star Quintet, Bill Charlap.
0: The known band was Christian McBride on bass, Miguel Zenon on sax, Bill Charlap on piano, Bill Stewart on drums, and John Faddis on trumpet. So that's great, and they played on square dance. Then, Herbie Hancock, who had already narrated the film, He came out and he jammed on take five with those guys. Now, the other thing that's enormously meaningful to our family is Dave right away said, because the artist being honored never plays, he said, I want my sons to play. And the director said, no much to Dave's disappointment. Through the whole thing, he's going, I'm so bummed out that, you know, you guys aren't playing because that's what's really unique to me, that somehow we did it as a family, you know, played together too. But secretly, the director's favorite thing is always to have these gotcha moments that he can capture on camera. So secretly, we were supposed to play and Dan, for example, Dave had no idea that Dan was with his family in Washington and Matthew our youngest brother, was also. They were in secreted away in different hotels. He knew that Darius, who had flown in from Africa, was there, and that I was there. And we kept saying, well, we're going to, uh, like, NEA grant meetings and stuff, which was going on in my life at that time. We were basically lying through our teeth because we are having these rehearsals backstage. So he really didn't know until the announcer says, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the sons of Dave Rubin.
2: gentlemen... Sons of
0: Dave This piece of scenery goes away, and then we're, we're playing Blue Rondo a la Turk together, and it's a famous moment because the director caught my dad, who you can clearly see mouthing, going "Son of a bitch!" You know, he he was like, and the director still considers it like the crowning glory of a, a, of any uh, celebrity honoree uh, being caught at that thing. And so it was great. But then we all watched it at my house when it was really broadcast. And so we get to that part of the show, and we saw that that the four-minute version of On Square Dance with all those great jazz musicians had been cut down to a 53-second version. Then they had a version of Take Five, which also included the U.S. Army Jazz Band.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the jazz ambassadors of the U.S. Army Field Band.
1: I don't know that anyone caught the significance of that, but the U.S. Army Jazz Band now is an integrated group. But my dad, World War II, was in Patton's army and he was on the front. He put together the first integrated band. And so that's what that US Army band was trying to represent. But you know, because they do everything really fast and it wasn't really explained. It was very inside. You'd have to know that he was considered the first person to have an integrated army band.
0: It was cool and we're watching that. It was a great arrangement. And then we're thinking like, wow, wait till we hear Herbie Hancock played his ass off on that. Then we're going, oh my God, they cut Herbie Hancock (laughs) out of take five. And we're going like, we're toast. They're never going to show us now. And Son of a Gun, they kept us. Some director made that decision because we thought if you're cutting out Herbie Hancock, we're out of there.
1: And it was my dad's birthday too. Right, That was the other part of it. It literally
0: was his birthday.
1: So somehow in the middle of... Blue Rondo, we managed to sneak in happy
0: birthday. A Polytonal version. Yeah, which poly. is just like Yeah, it was just it was just so cool. He was so happy. And then great things happened that of course you never see like one of my favorite ones is like we had to they slathered on makeup for us and all this stuff was disgusting. And we go up after the performance, we're back there and the Secret Service came up and they said there's an intermission and Obama wants to meet you guys. So you got to come down, but you got to leave like right now. So we're like, oh, you know, trying to get the stuff off my face. And then you have to go through security like you're going through, even though we'd been through it and we never left the building just to get backstage again. You had to go through all the security things. So they were honoring Mel Brooks, too, at the same time. So we're standing there in line to meet him backstage with Michelle. And I'm standing next to this lady that has these Wagnerian pigtails and hubcaps and stuff because she was in a beer garden costume for springtime for Hitler. <laughs> I'm standing next to these very happy, proud, and gay, brown-shirted stormtroopers <laughs> that were really Broadway dancers. And I go, oh, my God, we're Her- going to meet him right now. I can't believe <laughs> it. And I was like, <laughs> and Herbie Hancock, right? <laughs> it was like such a mixture. You know, we were
1: going, oh, man, if anyone from the Republican Party sees him right. shaking hands with all these people.
0: right. He's, right. done. Right. He, <laughs> he's
2: done, He's
0: toast. But but this is this is really cool in terms of the full circleness of it, is that when I did get a chance to shake his hand, I said, Well it's good to see you again. And the reference to that was in his book called Dreams of My Father. Most people know that Barack Obama hardly knew his father. His father, in an effort to do something cool with his son to help them bond, took them to the Honolulu Symphony to see Dave Brubeck and his sons play
2: with the Honolulu Symphony. And he writes about it in his book. That's when I discovered jazz. and I know personally how powerful his performances can be. I mentioned this to Dave backstage. In the few weeks that I spent with my father as a child, he came to visit me for about a month when I was young. One of the things he did was to take me to my first jazz concert in Honolulu, Hawaii in 1971, and it was a Dave Brubeck concert. <laughs> and, and I've been a jazz fan ever since. The world that he opened up for a 10-year-old boy was spectacular. And and Dave, for the joy that you've given millions of jazz lovers like me.
0: After the gig, there was a big sort of cast party. When we walk in, we see Sting's wife is sitting on the couch next to him. Sting is literally kind of on one knee talking to Dave. Bruce Springsteen is by. <laughs> <laughs> They're all having this chat, you know, and you're finding how much his music meant to those guys. Uh, it was so funny. that uh, on the way out of there, I said, Dad, that was really cool. And he says, is this Bruce Springsteen a big deal? <laughs>
1: what was that guy's name?
0: Stang or whatever? <laughs> this tune, Thank You, or uh, Jim Coutier, the story behind that, uh, Dave was on that 58 tour, and he went to a Chopin museum that used to be Chopin's house. And Dave's mother, our grandmother, Bessie, played Chopin all the time on the piano, and my dad grew up hearing that. So when he saw Chopin's piano in his house, it, it really was very meaningful to him personally. Then he went to play the concert that night, And that melody was still burning in his brain so strong, he's the kind of ear player who would have the moxie to just play it at the concert. He also met with someone who came backstage and said, hey, we just want you to understand that you're going to get a very tepid response tonight from the audience. But that's because if we really show how much we love your music, which we've heard in Voice of America, and I applaud very enthusiastically, the communist police and soldiers that are in the audience will stop the concert just to further punish us because they don't want us to be happy. They'll take it away from us. So tell the guys in the group that we love it. And so they played this tune, Thank You, for the first time. And it's been a big part of our musical lives to know this tune. And then Dan and I played in Poland with Darius, And there were people in their 90s in wheelchairs that came up to us and said, we were in the audience the day your dad played this tune for the first time. It was so meaningful for them. There were tears streaming down their eyes when they talked about it. Dave had that amazing skill where he can write something that somehow can seem pretty simple or sometimes complicated, but the most important thing, that it just resonates with audiences. And for Dan and I, who have been playing with him, for probably 50 or 60 years. It's just great that he's part of our music and we're an extension of his music and we've all done this together. People say, well, how can you make music you know, when you're living in his shadow? At this point, I think we've done so much together that we're all part of the legacy of what he did. Thank you again to Dan and Chris Brubeck for sharing their time and memories with me and for carrying on the music and inspiration set forth by their father. For the Echo Chamber, thank you for listening. Till next time, I'm your host, Brandy Howell.